I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, before we get to today's show, I want to say hello to you if you are new to Death, Sex, and Money. If you are looking for some episodes to dive in with, we've got a starter kit of some of our favorites at deathsexmoney.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there. And wherever you're listening right now, I hope you'll hit subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. Next week, our episode is looking at living with chronic illness. I talk with former professional rock climber Mason Earle about his chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME-CFS, in a series of phone calls while he laid in bed. When life it just sort of go, is going your way at every single turn, you start to think, oh gosh, you know, I'm in control here. And uh, that's just not the case. I can't wait to share this story with you next week. Today's episode is a special one that we made along with our friends at The Cut Podcast from New York Magazine. Enjoy. Man, this feels like therapy. This, <laughs> I-, <laughs> I know. How do we start? But it's more complicated than therapy because it's unclear who's in charge. It's unclear who's the confessor and who's the question asker. Oh, I'm the question asker to you. You know what it's like to not have kids. I don't know what it's like to have kids. You are on the other side of a threshold that I don't know if I'll ever get to. I mean, I cannot imagine you would have questions for me. In collaboration with The Cut from New York Magazine, this is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. And I'm Avery Truffleman, host of The Cut. Why don't we just start, Avery, by like uh, today, when you think about the question about whether you want to become a parent, what comes up? Um, yeah, so I, I'm about to turn 30. And like ostensibly, yes, I can, I don't have to play by anyone's rules. I don't have to get married. I don't have to do the things that we've been told we have to do in our 30s. And yet... In this, like, crushing, embarrassing concession to biological and hormonal differences, I am a cis woman, and I am strictly, entirely on the fence about whether or not I want to have a kid. And, like, I kind of have to decide this decade. And that's a huge decision that changes and affects the rest of your life. And I guess I wonder... You're almost in the exact same position that I'm in, like working as a podcaster, being in media. And I'm curious how you went from my position to your position. Like what, why did you make the plunge? 
Okay, I'm going to dive into this answer. For me, I like what's so strange is that I always thought of myself as a person who, for whom work uh, and my work identity and work achievement and, and ambition was very integral, and it still is. Yeah, I, that's never been a question. I also always knew that I wanted to to be a mom, to have a kid. How did you know? How did you always know? I just, I like, it's so, um, I can remember having this conversation with, with some other journalists who did not know whether they wanted to become parents. And all I can, like, that, that was the question, like, how do you know? What are you, what's the feeling? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the knowing? And it was like, to me, I just like put my arms in like a little cradle and was like, I don't know, but I just know. And I like cradled my arms back and forth. Like that this is something that I want to do. Like I want to hold my child. Mm. I wish, I wish I had the sort of certainty of that desire. I guess that's like, it leads to this more existential question of like, is it more painful to know exactly what you want? Or is it more painful to not <laughs> know anything and yeah. just be adrift? Yeah. I am adrift at the moment. And so we are focusing this episode of The Cut and Death, Sex, and Money on this idea of how or when you're supposed to know if you should be a parent. And yes, there are ethical and environmental reasons not to have a kid. And there are financial and logistical considerations for whether or not to have a kid. And of course, not everyone gets to make the choice. Sometimes becoming a parent or not is just decided for you. But today, we're focusing on the sets of questions that come up when you think about parenting and ambition and identity. I am raising two kids with my husband. But we're also going to hear about people who have approached the question of whether and how to parent from really different angles. Avery and I first talked about this a few weeks back. I mean, this is going to make me sound like an absolute maniac. But I guess... This shows you where my priorities are now. Like, what was the... Do you remember the first time that it, that being a parent really ate into your ambition? Where you were like, I would like to do this meaty story or interview, but I can't right now because I have a, a baby to raise. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I... For me, it was like, oh, travel is not... Travel is not something I want to do. Or if I do have to do it, right. I need to be really strategic about how many nights I'm away, what it's for, and be really clear what I'm going to get out of the time away because it has a cost. Right. I have a job that, like, I've been able to, like, make flexible so that I haven't – don't feel like I've had to um, give up – my identity as a professional person and as a working person or as a creative person, I still feel like I have that part of me. I, and I feel like becoming a mom has just like, it's as if a whole other side of my body has been like, I picture like it blowing up with muscles that I didn't know I could have, which is like how to soothe, how to um, teach, how to comfort how to like how to argue with a kid and get really emotional and then come back around so you both like 
apologize when you get frustrated. Like, there's just parts of me that I feel are so much more full. But I guess I wonder, like, what your relationship is with your own ambition right now. Because I'm so embarrassed to admit that I'm just, like, a, a fiery ball of ambition. Is there part of you, as someone who, like, self-identifies really deeply as an artist, is there part of you that worries that you will be a less interesting artist if all of a sudden you're an artist and a mom? <laughs> oh, my God. Get your foot off my neck, Anna. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You got it. That's the that, – mm-hmm. That's totally the fear. I don't know if I have any right to identify as an artist. But, yeah, like when I think about my models for motherhood, I think of like Yoko Ono and Vivian Westwood. And I don't Mm -hmm. think they were like the best moms because they were balancing a lot of other things. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it—I worry that it might mean sort of uh, King Solomon style splitting the baby and not being very good at either art or motherhood. Hmm. You know, when you when you when you dilute the two. And so that's why it's so nice to talk to to you about it, because I I really wonder what this has done to the quality of your work or the kind of work you do since becoming a parent. Yeah, I wonder about that, too. It's like, what would it be like? Really? <laughs> well, yeah, it's like it's changed. The way I work has changed. And so like the work has changed and I still think I'm like making stuff that I'm really like excited and interested in and proud of, but it's different. Um, I mean, I, the thing that you say about Yoko Ono and Vivian Westwood, it makes me also, I just want to like name it. Like I do also think that by and large, we don't think moms are hip. We think there's a certain like, uh. there's like a flattening to it. Okay, you've just touched on one more, like, very core insecurity that I have around motherhood, which is kind of, I mean, I am i can't think of a more polite way to say it, so I'm just going to sound mean. I'm so sorry. But, like, the, the, the sort of basicking yeah. that happens. Oh, yeah. And oh, I love that I verb. Like it, oh, my God, that's a really good verb. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you... You are someone who has worked so hard to develop an acumen for what is new and what is interesting and what, you know, is missing from the conversation and needs to be said. And I know so many other brilliant, rigorous journalists who have become not only mothers, but just parents, you know, who who really held up an eye for a story. And then suddenly they're sharing, you know... No, say, I want to hear your most mean self. I Just say it. Get the it out. Like, I just want to hear it. We know judgment-free <laughs> zone. I'm not taking it personally. Just say it. They're showing me pictures of their kids and, like, I don't care. And they send me, like, a picture of their kid, whatever, like, covered in food. That's actually kind of gross. Like, I don't actually care. Your, your vision of what is interesting gets so warped. Oh, I sound No, I just awful. keep it keep it coming. I love it. I want to hear it like a fire hose. No, I just uh, <laughs> But do you know what I mean? I've spent so long curating, fine-tuning like what is interesting? What is interesting to other people? What is a good story? I mean, I think an important thing to know is like when you're around kids, are you like magnetized towards them or not? 
You know, that's an interesting thing. I loved kids. Like, that was my, ma- I was like a babysitter growing up. I, but I was like a kid along with them. Like, we would make Sundays. And I remember these two kids I would babysit, we would cover the entire road with sidewalk chalk, like do these big ambitious art projects and just make it an adventure and have insane amounts of fun, like way too much fun. So I I do love kids a lot. And I think I also sometimes live my life for the adventure. I like having stories to tell of like, wild late nights and weird encounters and, you know, stories heard secondhand at a bar. And I think I just treated kids like that, like one of those adventures. Mm -hmm. I sometimes wish I could be like a man in the 1950s, just like have some kids, understand the richness and the beauty of having a family, but like whatever, mostly moving on with my life. And um, I think that's the exact that's like one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum is right being like an excellent mother yeah. who has to do everything and i i can feel myself pulled towards both of those poles just wanting to slack off entirely or just like be the best most incredible nurturer and learn all these new sides of myself it irks me that i do not know this about myself it irks me to not know what i want in a big decision It is a big decision, yes. And, you know, the way you and I think about work is different, not just because I'm a parent. I don't think everyone who hosts a podcast wants to call themselves an artist or should call themselves an artist. But I don't know. I really do see myself that way. And I don't know if that's self-aggrandizing or not. And so I wanted to call up someone who is undoubtedly, obviously, an artist And she's a friend of mine, Julie Maritou. She's an abstract painter and an incredibly successful abstract painter. She's currently got a major retrospective at the Whitney Museum, which you should definitely check out if you're in New York. And she's also a mom. She has two sons, now ages 10 and 16. And we spoke over a video call. Okay, I'm going to start by telling you how absolutely mortified and embarrassed I am to be asking you about motherhood. Because it's such a, like, cliche thing to do to women. Well, I don't, why, why do you feel embarrassed to ask them? Because, you, you know, it's like, like, oh, you don't ask a man about, like, oh, what, how does fatherhood play into your work? And we, we should, should though. Them. Yeah. That's what we should. <laughs> it was Julie's wife at the time who pushed them to try to get pregnant. And Julie says she's grateful for that nudge. Both of them knew they wanted to be moms. And Julie was already making a living as a painter then. But all of my egotistical concerns about, like, losing my edge or whatever, those were not Julie's primary concerns. I wasn't a birth mother, so that's a very different reality of being a birth mother. But I, you know, I was with these children from their conception and making of them. And I think at the beginning, more I was worried about what kind of mother would I be. We want to idealize what we can be and that, that we're going to make this kind of perfect person and we want to try our best to like set that up. And that's an impossibility. And so for me, my fear was, will I remember to feed them? Will I remember like, how will I take care of this child? Like, how will I, how can I even do this? Like such an enormous responsibility. I was more anxious about that than I was about being able to work. And I've never worried about my work. I always will. I will always find a way to do that. And when their first son was born, Cade, 
Julie found ways to work with him, literally, like right alongside her there in the studio. I mean, he was in the baby Bjorn with me while I was painting. He was like on the floor. It was never going to be something that was, it was, there was a constant fluidity. Well, okay. Part of that fluidity is because Julie and her partner were living in Berlin at the time and getting to live outside the U.S. was kind of key. Julie is originally from Ethiopia, and she was very aware that the sort of individualistic, less communal way of raising kids is super American and that the world has other alternatives. We went to Berlin and almost everybody had children and all these artists had children. Our family, and yet kids would like hang out together in the Spielplatz and you could drink wine and eat oysters next door. So there's this <laughs> real kind of like... Um, fluidity to being like a parent and being able to really live your life in a very different way and let the kids kind of live their life on in this place of risk in in, in a sense which was really different than having children here but it, th- those early years really changed how we could be parents as, and be adults at the same time I mean you make it all sound kind of like beautiful and wholesomely integrated with your life and your work and your practice I mean what did you have to give up as a parent? Well, yeah, smoking. <laughs> I don't know. Like, b- bad behavior <laughs> in front of them. I feel like so much of the mythos of the artist is, like, smoking and behaving badly and, um, I don't know, being kind of interesting in that way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I, I think like, are you? Do you have a lot of friends who are interesting now that they're mothers? Is that why I'm just coming out? <laughs> I mean, I feel like most interesting adults I know, not all, because there's a lot that have chosen not to parent, but uh, most have had have had children. It's it's kind of like uh, what happens to most people. But I always have to say, like having kids and have and and they they have been my biggest teachers. The exuberance with which they make and create. I was, I was watching Cade one time when he was like 18 months, just painting. And, and it was such a, so instructive for me because I feel, I was like, man, you're so uptight. Look at his, the freedom with which he just approaches this. And, you know, when he was four, I took him onto the mural, the painting that I have downtown. And he, and, and, and I'd finished it in the studio in Berlin and I was going to be working on it back here. But before we left, I took him to make some secret marks into the painting, wherever he wanted. And he approached it so freely. And then I came back to, into the painting with, actually trying to make after his marks because there was this like amazing um he had just exuberant freedom that the the kids make from and 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 they experience life from that place so for me there's this constant like you know way of kind of interacting and learning from them and not just with art julie gets inspiration from her kids in just the way they think and the ways they approach the world I can tell you that the the way that my children think about gender, think about politics, think about race, think the, the way they think about um, the the economy, capitalism, it's unbelievable. They are so they're so radical and kind of rigorous as different ways of being. Like, and I felt like I was like pretty trying to be as raise them as free and as openly as I can. But then, you know, these kids come up; they totally call us out for our like the the constraints on our imagination of what is free. I know, I feel like there's something about the way that people can have kids and find liberation as well is important. And so for me, like there's something about like talking to people about it because no one ever talked to us about me about it in that way. Are you thinking about having kids or not thinking about having kids? 
<laughs> well, the time is, you know, as you said, like clock, the clock I, I got to make a decision. Yeah. And <laughs> with, if I do, or if I don't, it's going to ch- like affect my life tremendously. And either choice is a choice. I think kids are like, you know, whether you have them or what, it's about this kind of like nurturing of something else, right? Your primary place shifts, your primary relationship to yourself shifts. And that happens, I think, in a way in meditation too, or when you're in really deep creative flow, right? You're like, you're lost in this other way of engaging. And I think like parenting is very much like that. And, you know, again, I realized that I'm speaking from an immense privilege to be able to really consider parenting. You want children, Avery. Oh, but I've... (laughs) But you you really don't. (laughs) I do, but I don't. I don't know. But if a brilliant, talented artist like Julie Maritou can find creativity and inspiration and even liberation in parenthood, then what should I be so afraid of? But then again, Julie raised her kids partly in Europe, and I just don't know if the United States could really support the kind of life where you can be parents and also totally just be autonomous adults. Coming up, more on that very American brand of family life and what happened when one mother decided to do things differently. I was driving away in the car by myself with only my things. And for the first time in my life as a person, I was going to have my own bedroom, my own space. I had never had this in the whole of my life. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. And I'm Avery Truffleman, host of The Cut from New York Magazine. Part of why making the decision to become a parent is so fraught is once you have a kid, you can't undo it. You brought a child into the world who now needs to be taken care of. And there are some pretty rigid societal expectations of how that is supposed to look, especially for moms. Writer Maria Housden is in her 50s now, but back in the 90s, she was a stay-at-home mom. And then her life changed. And she realized she wanted to be a different type of parent. I'm curious, Maria, I was thinking about this. When, when you're meeting someone new and they ask you, do you have kids? At what point do you tell them about your history with motherhood, what motherhood looked like for you? Well... The first aspect of it comes up for me when I have to wonder, do I tell them I have three children or four, right? Because I had a daughter that died. Maria's relationship to mothering started to shift after her child, Hannah, was diagnosed with cancer when she was two years old. 
we had come to the emergency room with Hannah um, and they had admitted us um, and to wait for some, you know, tests to come back. So um, I remember as soon as Hannah was settled, you know, for the night, I had picked up the phone and I had called the church, the PTA, you know, all of these things that I had been involved with, you know, over time that I really had thought were an important part of who I was, an important part of my responsibility as a mother and a woman in the world. In calling these people and telling them, you know, that my daughter was sick, this was the only thing I wanted to be focused on. I realized kind of in the aftermath, the concerns I would have had in the past about, you know, oh, are these people going to think I'm a bad person for not being able to do this or not being interested, you know, all these unconscious motivations that we have. Um, and it was very simple and very easy to let that go. There's a, a beautiful line from a poem uh, by written by Jane Hirschfeld called Ripeness. And she says, ripeness is what falls away with ease. So it was really from that that I began to walk more boldly and unapologetically through my life. Yeah. I love that line, ripeness is what falls away with ease. Yes. One other thing that fell away, Maria's marriage. She and her then-husband decided to split up about five years after Hannah died. And when they started talking about how they would parent after they divorced, Maria says her ex suggested that she be the one to move out. When my ex-husband first proposed this as a possibility when we were divorcing. I was horrified. I was like, what kind of mother would do that? Well, how could you even think of that? That never even crossed my mind, right? I just assumed that I would stay in the house and he would get the apartment because that's the way everyone does it. But then Maria started to consider what it would be like to not have primary custody of three kids. It was like a bursting into, like the breaking of the egg, like a whole new world of possibilities. Again, I had never anticipated or considered. And I was desperate for that at that point. It was only five years in the wake of Hannah's death, and I still had a lot of, a lot of grieving and healing to do. So one night, in the middle of the night, out of a sound sleep, I literally sat up in bed with this realization that the only thing I was afraid of was what other people would think. And when I realized that, when I got that, I was like, well, I don't care about that. After the divorce was final, Maria saw her kids every other weekend and during summers. And she worked on her first book about her daughter, Hannah. This was in 1998, and Maria and her family lived in a tight-knit New Jersey suburb. She didn't know any other divorced couples let alone families where the mother moved out, away from the kids. I did have a moment with a, a close friend of mine who was, you know, in my, in, we were in our mom's group together. When I was making this decision um, during the divorce, she at one point said to me, we're all miserable. What makes you so special that you get to do this? That, wait, I just want to like sit with that a little bit. Like, what was she saying to you? Like, let's, she was saying like, why do you think you get to ask for this? Yes. Yeah. Why? What makes you so special that you get to like go and do this when we're all like trying to make it work? But that goes to you probably heard the um, 
thing about the crabs in the bucket, right? You know, when you put the crabs in the bucket, as soon as one of them gets almost to the top to climb out, the others pull it back down. It's a pretty dim view of motherhood. Well, if you are unhappy in your life, regardless of, you know, where you are in the motherhood spectrum or stage of the story, you know, uh, some people are happier than others in, in that moment or in that context. And again, each person, you know, is unique and, and should and does have a different set of choices. But I've known that I was making the right decision for me and for my children and for our family the whole time. I just didn't expect how difficult it was going to be, you know, for anyone else to be okay with it. So if someone says to me, you know, should I do this? Do you recommend it? I say, no, you have to know this is best and right for you. You have to know it in such a way that you can weather the storm that is going to come. So I don't recommend it, but I, I will say that there's no question. It was the right decision for all of us, even if it was painful, even if it was challenging. You say you don't recommend it. What is it that you don't recommend? Well, I don't recommend being uh, the parent that moves out, whether you're the father or the mother. I'm just telling everyone, if you are that parent, that is going to be difficult in ways you can't anticipate. Having lived the life you've lived, if you were talking to somebody who was um, who hasn't had that clarity about being a parent and wanting to be a parent, and but instead has a lot of questions and confusion and uncertainty. Um, what would you tell that person about the questions they need to ask themselves? Well, the first and most important thing is to be honest and true with yourself about who you really are and what you really want. Even if you don't know what you want, you know, to give ourselves room to be honest with ourselves first. And then, you know, the big challenge, be honest with everyone in your life including and especially saying, I have no idea what I'm doing. That's Maria Housden. She wrote a book called Hannah's Gift about her daughter who died, and a second book called Unraveled, the true story of a woman who dared to become a different kind of mother. I mean, Anna, can I genuinely, like, on microphone right now, just sort of ask you, like, what did you think of Maria's story? As a parent, did that sensibility. I don't know. Yeah. What did you, what did you think of her decision? You know, what it made me think about was, um, you know, we've talked about the mommy wars like for decades as if there's this like army of women on one side who stay at home with their kids and are, you know, (laughs) full-time caregivers. And then on the other side are like working women who've made really different choices. And the thing that Maria really got me thinking about was like, um, let's acknowledge that for a lot of people, who are mothers, like the mommy war is waging in your head all the time, (laughs) you know, like that's something that's an internal thing. Okay. And I think, I think that's the thing that, that weirds me out about this story that Maria has. I don't, I'm not necessarily clutching my pearls because she was the non-custodial parent. I'm not scandalized by that, but I am extremely disheartened to be like, I think I, I think I fantasize that once you make the decision, like I will, I will have kids or not, then like, that's the decision. And like, you've, you know, you've cast your lot and you've decided it. And this idea that the, 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 the internal battles, I mean, obviously the internal battles continue, but it's very upsetting to hear that it just, there is no peace with the decision. It just continues to 
duke itself out in your mind. Yeah. And I will say, you know, Maria also mentioned to me while we talked about her really close relationships that she has with her kids as adults. And I was glad to hear that because I was wondering, what was this like for her kids? You know, what were their feelings yeah. about their mom making a different choice than than what they'd seen other moms do? We have one more conversation to share with you, and that's with the comedian Margaret Cho. Margaret is extremely candid about her whole life, from growing up with her strict Korean parents to her queerness to the fact that, at 52 years old, she does not have children. And she's been very honest about the way she's gone back and forth on her decision, wanting to be a mother and then wanting not to be a mother. Every time I've been pregnant, which is three, three, three times, yeah. Three times I've been pregnant, I've definitely um, thought, I gotta get, get out of this. I can't do this. But did that change at some point? At one point, weren't you trying to have a kid? At, at some point, I was trying, like, later on. But maybe it was almost this kind of thing of, like, last the last cry of the hormone, <laughs> the hormonal, mm. the, the final hormonal scream. It was like a primal scream of, like, Last call. It was last call for not alcohol, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So it was hard for Margaret not to consider giving parenthood a try. As a kid, she said she'd always absorb that when you grow up, you will have kids on your own, and that's the way things work. The future is inevitable that you're going to have a kid or do PCP. This is the (laughs) 70s. So um, I think that... There was this expectation that that was going to happen. I mean, how did that interact with your career as you were growing up? How did your mentality change or not change? Well, a lot of female comedians have children. And um, it's like, it's not a big deal. And like a lot of female musicians I know have children and it's not a big deal. Like Courtney Love set a a pretty good example of that, I think. (laughs) like, Or um, just a lot of like, Rock stars I would see at, like, music festivals with babies with headphones on to protect their hearing. Right. Which I was like, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Like, your kid can just be part of your journey. And not only was Margaret not worried that having kids would be a hindrance, it was also like having kids was hip. Like, in New York City, like parties that I would go to in the early 2000s, the ultimate accessory was a 12-year-old girl in like a jean jacket who acted like a little adult. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, by that mindset, were you like, I got to get me one of those? Like, how did that make you feel? Kind of. Yeah? It was kind of like, well, yeah, of course. Like in the early 2000s, like you wanted to be arguing with your rock star ex-husband about custody while you're leaving Pilates in your juicy couture cashmere tracksuit and Uggs. <laughs> so that was sort of like the dream of kind of what I thought my life would be. I thought that I would probably marry, like my mind, my miss, miss, in my in my imagination, I would be married to like a rock star, whether that was Melissa Etheridge or Richie Sambora, who's to know? <laughs> the dream is so intricate and planned down to the last detail. Why didn't it happen? <laughs> I think because um, I always avoided motherhood and marriage. I was I was married for twelve years, but um, why did you avoid motherhood? 
because I think I didn't want to love anybody more than I loved anything or loved my career or loved any, any, I, I was just so afraid of the um, expansion of my heart. To me, that seemed unbearable. Um, even though I know that with that brings a lot of joy and an escalation of celebration of life, it to me was too um, too much responsibility and too much um, of the unknown. I would rather control the capacity of my loving, which is like now it's like in a safe place, like now it's in a contained place. Now I can really kind of examine it and enjoy it. But I think that for that, parenting isn't for me. Of course, I have a lot of animals. <laughs> and that's fine. This is Lucia Caterina. Margaret, have you, have you ever identified as a parent? Has there been a phase in your life when you thought of yourself as a parent? Um, I guess in a sense, like I have like drag daughters, like drag, I have like a, the house of Cho. So I have a lot of like comedian children and like a lot of gay children and a lot of gay Asian children. And like, whenever I see younger Asian American comedians, I'm like, oh, those are my children. That's like, definitely. Yes. I'm a parent to that. So I have a whole dynasty of Asian American comedian, gay children, and then also all of my animals. <laughs> so yes, um, but that's not the same, you know, it's very different, but it's, it is very much apparent in that way. I mean, there's some ways it's the same. I, I think about, um, there's a quote years ago, I talked to the actor Ellen Burstyn and she adopted her son and she talked about how the act of mothering made her a mother. Mm. That, that the verb makes you the noun. And I, I think about that a lot. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I question whether having children is really this um, gendered imperative that's put onto us by society that has really infiltrated my brain. That I really question whether or not it was ever valid. That, that there's a hormonal response to children, babies, of course, but how much of that is social conditioning and how much of that is my own desire? I'm not sure. And I, I mean, I'm okay with not having them now. And, and it feels good. Like I'm okay right now with not having a partner. I'm okay with living alone, which is like, to me, um, if I was in my twenties, the idea of being alone in my 50s was the most terrifying prospect. But now I'm 52 and I'm alone and I'm the happiest I've ever been. So I realized that that was social conditioning in my 20s, being worried about being a middle-aged to older woman on my own, when I realized I'm so much better off than I've ever been. I'm, I'm good. It's like that, like, it's putting your hand over your glass of like life. Like I'm good. That's Margaret Cho. So, Avery, have you decided? No, are you kidding me? Of course not. <laughs> no, absolutely not. 
That is Avery Truffleman, host of The Cut podcast from New York Magazine. Thanks for doing this with us, Avery. Oh, such an honor. Thank you so much. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Yasmin Khan. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Afi Yellowduke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Avery and the whole team at The Cut Podcast for making this with us. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSalePix, P-I-C-S. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Noah Barkin in Durham, North Carolina, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Noah and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. And Avery, just so you know, not all moms give up smoking. I started smoking in my 40s, you guys. I found my way to the original tobacco, the organic, and I highly recommend it. I love how you're like, this is how much I don't care what people think. I'm going to highly recommend cigarette smoking in 2021. (laughs) Totally. I don't don't recommend, you know, being the parent that moves out because it's really hard to do, but I do highly recommend (laughs) organic smoke. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 